Trump is not a billionaire. He's worth nowhere near what he says he's worth. You are probably worth more than Donald Trump. It's all fraud. He's a con man. He plied 12-year-old, 13-year-old, and 14-year-old children with liquor, limousine rides, and hotel suites because they had money to gamble. Trump has had numerous business dealings with Russian oligarchs and Russian criminals, often the same people. And we know now, without a doubt, there's enormous amounts of evidence about this, that the Russians helped him, the Chinese government helped him. Do you think the war of Ukraine was going to happen if Trump was in power? Who are you? Uh, my name is David K. Johnston. I'm a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter. Uh, I'm a best-selling author in America. I am not a lawyer, but I'm a distinguished visiting lecturer for the last 15 years at Syracuse University College of Law. And I'm known as the Dean of Trumpologists because I have uh, written about Donald Trump since uh, the late 1980s. And what is your relationship with Trump? Do you love him? Do you hate him? I don't love or hate anybody. This is just a job. But, you know, I'm the person who first started point, well, second. There was a reporter ahead of me named Wayne Barrett, who's died. And he began showing in the late 1970s that Donald Trump was mostly a fraud. I came along a decade later, 1988, and I started establishing the same things on new issues. Um, for example, uh, Trump would claim back then that he was worth billions of dollars. He told me one day when we were walking on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, I said, Donald, how much are you worth? And he goes, $3 billion. And I said, Donald, I don't believe you. And he stopped cold, turned to me and said, what do you mean you don't believe me? Who's your editor? I want his phone number. And I said, glad to give it to you. And then he said, he started to walk again. And then he said, well, why don't you believe me? And I said, well, Donald, I'm a newspaper reporter and I have seven children and I pay all my bills on time. If you're worth $3 billion, you could pay all of these vendors, these small businesses that you owe money to for delivering pianos and furniture and painting walls at a casino he was building. I mean, it might hurt. You might have to sell something. You might have to pay an, an interest, a high interest rate. But you, if you were worth $3 billion, could pay these people. And you're not paying them. And he proceeded to tell me, you don't know anything about business. Let me just cut forward for a minute. For eight years, I was a professor in a graduate school of business after this incident. So uh, the proof that Donald is a, a fraud who just makes stuff up came later the same day. He told me he was worth $3 billion in the morning. That afternoon, he was back in New York City. He met with a TV reporter who said, how much are you worth, Donald? And he said, $5 billion. Well, nobody increases their net worth by $2 billion, especially when they're in real estate and casinos in about five hours. I mean, it's just that doesn't happen. And it's just one of many examples of what a fraud he is. But in my business, you don't like or dislike people. It's business. And, and let me rely on uh, words spoken to me once by Jigsaw John. Jigsaw John is the most famous detective in the history of the Los Angeles Police Department. There used to be a TV show in America called Jigsaw John. And John, uh, Jigsaw had this amazing ability to take totally disparate pieces that nobody else could figure out and solve murders and catch the killers. 
And he once said to me after I had solved a particularly vicious murder, uh, I don't care, Jigsaw said, who the killer is. I only care that I get the killer. And the same thing with the work that I do. Um, I just care about what the facts are that are being hidden. Uh, I've, I've exposed people who I found very personally likable, and I've exposed people who I find to be detestable. But those things don't matter. What matters is the conduct that you can prove about their behavior and then how they respond when you dig up stuff they don't want to have printed that is significant stuff. And how did Donald respond uh, that to you digging into his past? Well, soon after I met Donald Trump in May of 1988, uh, he uh, began to realize that unlike most journalists, I wasn't going to just quote what he said. I was going to check the facts. And Donald, of course, doesn't want to have the facts checked. Uh, he looks for reporters. He, that's why he liked the uh, New York Post, where whatever he, he said, they would just print it as if it was true or not worthy of being checked. And so um, he became much more cautious in dealing with me, um, knowing that I would check whatever he said. Um, I wrote a story in uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, where I worked at the time, and I was the Atlantic City Bureau Chief. That's where Trump's casinos were. Um, I wrote a story uh, in April of 1990 that said Trump is not a billionaire. He's worth nowhere near what he says he's worth. And for four months, Donald Trump went around telling anybody who brought up that story that I was a liar, I was an idiot, I was incompetent, I know what I was talking about. Uh, never asked the newspaper for a correction, but went around attacking me. And then he had to put into the public record documents that showed I was correct. And this came in two parts. The first part came when there was a hearing before the casino regulators and uh, men in um, the kind of suits people wear in warehouses over their clothes, pullovers with a zipper so they don't get their clothes dirty, came into this hearing room with a banker's boxes of files. And they filled the wall about six deep, the whole length of the wall. There were probably 50 or 70 boxes. And Don came over and poked me and said, ha ha ha, you'll never figure this out. Uh, one of my sources told me, uh, you want box 14, file J69 or whatever. I don't remember the exact numbers and whatnot, but he gave me exactly where the document I wanted was. When the hearing was over, I went to the state officials and said, I wanted something out of the documents. And they said, oh, well, it'll be weeks before we process these. I mean, it might even take months. And I said, oh, that's okay. And I simply reached over to the box where I wanted something and pulled the lid off and said, I just want this file. And I pulled out the file. And the guy looked at me and he says, how do you do this? How do you figure these things out? And I said, let's get paid to do. Um, so we wrote about the fact that in fact, he wasn't worth what he said. Shortly after this, at a public hearing, another public hearing, um, we got to see the estimate by Trump's bankers. He was trying to not pay back $3 billion that he had borrowed. He ultimately only paid back $2 billion of the three. So he got away with not paying back a, 
uh, almost a billion dollars, 900 and some million dollars. And in the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, above the name of the newspaper, normally a newspaper has its masthead at the top of the page, the New York Times, Le Monde, whatever. My story ran above that on the front page, stripped across the top. I wrote, you are probably worth more than Donald Trump because Donald Trump's net worth that he claimed was $3 billion, $5 billion, whatever he made up, was actually negative $300 million plus. He owed $300 million more than the value of his assets. And from the day of that story forward, Donald was just livid with me. He has described me as the journalist he hates most in the world. Donald operates a lot from hate. I don't. And um, he, he also has a nickname for me. He calls me the weird dude. Well, the fact that I have eight now grown children, I suppose, is a little weird. But beyond that, not at all. Uh, married to the same woman for 41 plus years, for example, uh, unlike Donald. Um, so it, it, Donald has always been, uh, since uh, late 1988, very cautious around me because like my friend Wayne Barrett, uh, he knows that I will check the facts on anything he says before I write about it. And because he just makes stuff up, that's a real danger to him. So... Um... As I understand, there is a lot of stories that you exposed before he was uh, president. And But how with all these uh, stories and all this uh, bad stuff uh, exposed, getting exposed about you become, become a president of the United States? Is that, that very strange? Well, yes and no. Um, uh, I uh, Let me walk through this. Um, Yes, before Donald ran for president, um, I revealed things like he plied 12-year-old, 13-year-old, and 14-year-old children with liquor, limousine rides, and hotel suites because they had money to gamble. You have to be 21 to gamble. And you know, you might mistake a 19-year-old who's dressed up for a 21-year-old, but 12-year-olds, you know, no, you, that's not possible. There's not possible. And the analogy I used when I spoke, I, I gave uh, the address to the World Gaming Conference, that is the whole industry around the world of the gaming business. I said, you know, imagine that a guy my age is having sex with a, a young woman. At what age do you say there's no excuse, this is illegal, and don't start below 18? Because at 18, it may be look bad, but it's legal. But I said, you know, 17, I had everybody in the room stand up. If you think 17, I should go to jail, sit down. I'd like two people out of 4,000 sat down. And when I got down to 13, there were like five people standing. And I said, if I go to 12, we're all going to sit down, right? Everybody understands that a 12-year-old cannot be mistaken for a 21-year-old. But Donald did this to make money. He cheated novice roulette players at one of his casinos. He hired people he calls illegal aliens, uh, Polish emigres to the United States who were not in the U.S. legally, and then refused to pay them until uh, the workers got together and threatened to kill his uh, construction boss. And there's a long history of these things that he did, lying, cheating, stealing that I had documented. But not a lot of people know about that. People knew Donald Trump through all of the publicity he got, especially through the New York Post and through television shows 
like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And they knew him from his show, The Apprentice and The Celebrity Apprentice. Now, to anybody who knows business, The Apprentice and The Celebrity Apprentice, where people were competing to have the opportunity to work with him, knew that this was utter nonsense, what you were watching. It's not how business operates. But if you're a factory worker in Ohio, if you're a even very successful soybean farmer in Iowa, uh, if you're a school teacher, what in the world would you know about how business operates at a high level? So he conned all these people with this TV show that made him look like he was some sort of business genius when he's not. So now to get to your question, why did he get elected? I predicted he would get elected in 2015 when he announced for the third time he was running for president. He ran briefly in 2000 and said he'd be the first person to make a profit off of running for president. I think he did, but we don't have any documents to prove or disprove that. He ran in 2012, um, and at the time, only two nationally known American journalists, me and Lawrence O'Donnell, who was a host on the MSNBC cable channel, said he's not running for president. He's running for a new contract for his TV show to get more money. He wants to show that he has a bigger audience than the NBC network thinks. And indeed, as soon as he got his new contract with more money, he went on TV and said, you know, I should be president. Only Donald Trump has what's needed to be the president of the United States. There's no one else. But my TV show needs me more now. So I'm going to withdraw from the race for my TV show. Well, the politics reporters who covered this had egg on their face. They looked like idiots. They treated him as a serious candidate, and he made them look like fools. Now, when he go forward in time, that was in 2012. 2015, Donald comes down the uh, escalator with his wife and announces he's running for president. And I immediately dropped everything else I was doing for the next seven, the next eight years to focus on him because I knew he could get in. Why did I know he could get in? Well, uh, I had written a series of best-selling books about the American economy and how it really is as opposed to what's in the news every day. One of those books won the Investigative Book of the Year Award. They were best-selling books. And part of Donald's economic platform that he ran for president on came from my books. He didn't implement it, but he used my material. And there were three factors that Donald had going for him. The first one, the one with the biggest audience, was he want, promised he would lower taxes on ordinary Americans, which he didn't do in any significant way. That people got crumbs, pennies, dollars, not, you know, not hardly even dollars. Um, but he understood that from my, he didn't read my books, but he watched me on television. And I know he watched me and studied me because people who worked for him would call me and they would say, you know, Donald was talking about, you know, your parents on CNN last night or MSNBC. And he asked this or that about what you were doing. Well, the bottom 90% of Americans, that's almost 300 million people in 2015, their income was smaller, adjusted for inflation. We have to adjust for inflation. When you adjust for inflation, the 90% of Americans were making less money in 2016 than they were in 1973. 
I mean, it's almost a half century goes by and 90% of Americans have gone nowhere in terms of their income. Even as the country is getting so rich, we have people with his and her corporate jets. So Donald was appealing to these people. He was saying, Washington is cheating you. They're running everything for the elites, which was a part of the argument in my books that government policy was favoring people at the top. And I documented this extensively in my books. Um, and I alone can save you. I will improve your economics. I will drain the swamp. He actually turned Washington into a paradise for swamp monsters, the opposite of what he promised to do. Um, so the first part was these people who felt economically distressed. And by the way, while their incomes were down 4%, that's the equivalent of, of for a full year's pay in 73. In 2016, people only got paid till December 15th. And then they had to go the last 16 days of the year with no money. That's the equivalent. But it's much worse than that. In 1973, if you had a pension, it was on top of your wages. You got your wages and then you got a pension. In 2016, almost nobody had a pension. And instead, you had to divert some of your cash wages away from your pocket, from paying your mortgage and buying groceries, to a retirement plan. It reduced your wages. Healthcare in 1973, on top of your wages. 2016 comes out of your cash wages, further reducing how much money you've got. And for every dollar Americans increased in equity in their homes, that is the share of the home that's debt free, they took on $2 of mortgage debt. Well, taking on $2 while adding only $1 to your equity, that is not a prescription for wealth. That is a prescription for being on a hamster wheel of debt, racing to pay your bills. So Donald very smartly appealed to these people, I'm your savior, I'll fix all this for you. The second group of people who supported him are people who want to live in a white dominated society. They don't like the civil rights movement. They don't like the feminist movement. They don't like the gay liberation movement. They want white males to run things. A lot of other people besides me have said that make America great again really means make America white again. And Donald has a long history uh, and his family has a more than century old history of racist behavior, of uh, being, mistreating people who are not white. And so Donald gave permission to people to use racial slurs. Remember, he in his original campaign announcement on June 16th, 2015, he referred to people coming to the U.S. from Mexico as rapists and murderers. Now, most of the people who come from Mexico come here to work, and they go, they work very hard not to ever do anything that would draw the attention of the police because they're not here legally. They want to harvest crops or work in uh, giant slaughterhouses or run restaurants, and they don't want trouble with the police. Now, the third group that Donald appealed to were people who call themselves Christians, evangelicals, but whose philosophy of life is not Christian. Uh, Jesus Christ's message in the New Testament is you are to love everyone. You must love your enemies. You must turn the other cheek. Uh, he hung out with prostitutes uh, famously. Donald Trump has written in books, or he had authors who actually did the writing for him write in his books, that his life philosophy is one word, revenge. 
In his book, Think Big, he said, when someone hits you, hit them back 15 times. Punch them in the face. That's not Christian. That is, in fact, aggressively anti-Christian. He, in that same book, spends six pages in his book, Think Big, calling Christians fools, idiots, and schmucks. Schmuck is a Yiddish word that Donald means in the sense of you're a penis, you're a dick. Now, most of these people who call themselves Christians who support Trump, they don't really understand what's in their Bible. They're not Christians. And in fact, a number of American news organizations in the past two months have reported that pastors say that their flocks don't want to hear the message of Jesus. They want to hear the message of Trump. Don't turn the other cheek. Don't be kind to the sick and the disabled and the foreigner. Instead, go after these people, beat them up, put them in prison, throw them out of the country. They said, and, and, and you can find news articles by Newsweek magazine and others, you know, we want the gospel of Donald Trump, the gospel of revenge and hate. And if you believe that, you're entitled to believe it, but you're not by definition a Christian, even if you insist you are. So you put these three groups together and they overlap. The 90% whose economics are terrible after almost 50 years. The people who don't like the civil rights movements, whether it's by race, gender, or sexual identity. And then the, the faux Christians, F-A-U-X, the fake Christians. And that was enough people to get into the White House. Now, remember, he lost the vote. The American people didn't pick Donald Trump. The Electoral College did. Hillary Clinton beat Trump by over 3 million votes, but Trump won enough states in the Electoral College. The Electoral College under our Constitution is very heavily weighted to the rural states and the small states. So, uh, you know, Wyoming, the smallest state in America by population, has 570,000 people. It has two senators, two votes in the Electoral College. California, with 40 million people, gets two senators. And so he eked out this electoral college win. And we know now, without a doubt, there's enormous amounts of evidence about this, that the Russians helped him. The, in fact, they met with the Russians and had a meeting with them. That the emissaries directly from the Kremlin, who announced they were from the Kremlin, to help him. Uh, that the Chinese government what's, helped him. President Xi. What's the motivation for, for Russian people and the Chinese people to help him? Well, in the Russian case, Hillary Clinton had been the U.S. Secretary of State. And in 2014, Putin uh, invaded Crimea. Now, he at the time said, those aren't my soldiers. Those guys with no insignia, they're, they're not mine. After he had successfully taken over Crimea, of course, he publicly said, of course, they were my people. And uh, Hillary Clinton had said that if she was elected, she was going to work very seriously on kicking the Russians out of Crimea. She made it very clear to Putin to his face when she was Secretary of State that this was intolerable. This was the first time since World War II that any European land had been forcibly taken from another country. And so Putin had very good reason not to want Hillary Clinton. Secondarily, in 1987, I'm sorry, as early as 1983, uh, the Kremlin was... Uh, courting Donald Trump as an asset. And in 1987, 
they gave, they gave him an all-expenses-paid luxury tour of Russia. And Donald has sons have said publicly, oh, we don't need bank financing. We're getting all the money we need from Russia. Uh, Trump has had numerous business dealings with Russian oligarchs and Russian criminals, often the same people, and uh, uh, has had numerous business dealings with Russians directly or one step away that I've documented in my books and so have other people, many of which make no economic sense. And I'll give you one example of this. Uh, one of the oligarchs, who I'm sorry, his name escapes me at the moment, oh, Rybolovlov. Uh, one of the oligarchs, Rybolovlov, who's worth supposedly more than $20 billion, bought a house in West Palm Beach, in Palm Beach, Florida, where Trump is. Uh, Mar-a-Lago, his Florida state is there. And this house on the water was the most garish, ugly, unbelievably ill-conceived house you can imagine. You can go on the internet and see pictures of it. Rooms that made no sense, one room to the next, done by people with no taste at all, none, zero. And um, Trump bought this house he then sold it for what he said was $100 million. Um, the house was worth at the time probably no more than $33 million, And I think that would be a, a very high price for the house. And when this became a public issue, Ribolovlov's people announced that, well, he was trying to conceal assets from his wife. That's why they did this deal and why he uh, bought this property from Trump for two or three times what it's worth. Well, if you think about that for a second, that makes absolutely no sense. If I was getting divorced from my wife and wanted to hide money, I wouldn't go overpay for an asset. Why would I pay two or three times the price of an asset? That doesn't hide money from my wife. That's the equivalent of starting a bonfire on the beach and burning $100 bills. It made no sense whatsoever. And in fact, this was pretty clearly a payoff to Trump to help him when he was desperately in need of cash. And Ribolovlev, you remember, had served time in prison on the orders of Putin. And in addition, uh, Ribolovlev had been fined by Putin. Uh, both of these were disciplinary actions taken against him. And if you look at uh, Putin and the oligarchs, the second wave of oligarchs, not the ones from 1989, 1990, but the ones from when Putin took over at the end of the century. Um, it's a criminal gang. And if I'm the leader of a mob, I don't want to spend my time managing you. I don't care that you're having trouble with your wife or your oldest son or whatever. You know, go do what you're supposed to do. And, and when I tell you to do something, you render me the service I want. And if you don't do it, I'm either going to make you pay financially or I'm going to whack you. And that's exactly how Putin behaves as the head of the best financed, most powerful criminal gang in the world. And Trump has years and years and years of dealing with people. Trump Tower was one of only two premium residential buildings, high-rise residential buildings in Manhattan, where you didn't have to prove who you were to get an apartment. In the building where I have a tiny little apartment, uh, you know, a, a couple hundred square feet, one room, studio apartment. I had to go before a board and my wife and I had to be approved just to live in the building. 
in Donald's building, if you showed up and said, I want to buy this apartment and I don't want to put it in my name, I want to put it in the name of my company, Snow Incorporated. If it was me, I would say, well, is Snow Incorporated a, a ski lodge in Colorado or is it a cocaine business? And Donald wouldn't ask <laughs> questions like that. What he say is to people he had good reason to think were criminals, particularly Russian criminals, he'd say, oh, well, you know, uh, that million dollar apartment, I want two million for it. And they'd go, sure. And they'd, they'd pay in cash. I mean, one guy literally showed up with, with uh, paper bags full of cash to pay for his apartment, which is a pretty good sign that something is not kosher, something is not legal. And uh, Trump did numerous business deals like this that make no sense in a business sense, but make lots of sense if he's being courted by Putin to compromise him. Okay, so since we are in the topic of Putin, do you think the war uh, of Ukraine was going to happen if Trump was in power? In yes, I do. I, I, I think it's a bit of a mystery why uh, Putin waited until February of 2022 uh, to invade Ukraine. But Putin had made it clear for years he was going to invade Ukraine. And in fact, he plans, he, he, just read his own writings, read the interviews he's given. Uh, he intends to uh, bring all of the former Russia, uh, Soviet satellites under the Russian Federation. There's no question that he's, he said this repeatedly. He said that the, the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century was the breakup of the Soviet Union. And I had relatives by marriage in Slovakia and Hungary, and they are just terrified that if, if Ukraine loses, the Russian tanks are just a matter of time. Um, I, when I spoke at, in Gothenburg, Sweden in September at the Global Investigative Journalism Conference, I spoke with journalists from Ukraine and Poland and countries like Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, uh, all of whom believe that if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, they're on the list. They may not be the very next country, but they're on the list. The Russian tanks are coming. So... Um, why Putin waited until 2022 probably is lost to the internal and obviously not public politics of the Kremlin. But um, Trump wasn't going, Trump, I mean, Trump wanted to weaken NATO. He wanted to get rid of NATO. Uh, I think Putin may have been hoping Trump would get a second term and things would be better for him uh, once that happened when NATO was weakened. Biden gets elected. He immediately goes to work strengthening the NATO alliance, building a coalition of people to oppose the invasion of Ukraine, and trying to get the American Congress to understand that uh, if Ukraine falls, there will be no more trouble. And this isn't the domino theory of the Vietnam War, which was nonsense. This is a, because the Vietnam War was really a civil war within the country. Uh, this is a, um, uh, a, a real, I think, legitimate uh, threat. And Putin um, clearly thought that, well, they got a, a government run by a, a comedian. I mean, that's what uh, uh, President Zelensky was. He was a stand-up comedian, a TV comedian. Um, what, what the hell does he know? And I, don't, I think he completely misestimated what would happen. 
Uh, the Russians have now lost something approaching 50% of their uh, military materiel, you know, uh, uh, tanks, armored personnel carriers, mortars, uh, things like that. Uh, and their losses, my God, their losses are four times what they lost in Afghanistan. When they remember when the Russians invaded Afghanistan in 1979, four times. And the population of the Russian Federation today is vastly smaller. One of the things we forget is Russia's population has come down by almost 100 million people in the last 50, 40 or 50 years. Um, uh, and his, he's exhausted his foreign currency. Um, I wouldn't set foot in Russia with Putin there because uh, Donald Trump says he hates me more than anybody else in the world. I don't think it would be safe for me to go there. But people I've talked to who have been to Russia outside of Moscow have told me stories of privation. And then, of course, all of them who are Russia hands will say to you, of course, the Russian people are used to privation. They've gone through it. It's it's not like if in America you had privation, you'd have big trouble. But he's destroying the economy of Russia and destroying his military in the pursuit of this war with Ukraine. And he doesn't seem to have any way out of it. The Ukrainians uh, have been tactically and strategically very smart. If you become a military officer 100 years from today, anywhere in the world, you will study how the Ukrainians resisted the Russians, whether in the end they win or lose. This will be seen as one of the crucial things military officers must study. How did the Ukrainians do this? And part of the reason is there's virtually no officers in the Ukrainian army trained by the Russians. The Russian army was in many ways a Potemkin army because, you know, the how did all those Russian generals get rich? Russian colonels? Well, because they would announce a big war game and then they'd conduct a little piece of it for show and they would steal the fuel and sell it and other things and, and in line their pockets. Um, uh, uh, and they don't have sergeants. And in combat in the battlefield, sergeants are crucial. My father was a sergeant in World War II. You got 10 or so men under you. You know, if your other sergeant gets killed, you might have 20, but typically you have 10 men under you. And you have to make decisions. Well, we were told by the lieutenant to go get this objective. We can't, but we're going to move over here because there's an opportunity to move. But if you don't have sergeants, you either stay in place or you keep going after the targets you can't achieve. And that's how you end up with all of these forces. And then the Russians did something unbelievably stupid that they continue to do. Soldiers in combat have cell phones. They call home to mama. They call home to their girlfriend. And they're not encrypted. So the Ukrainians and the Americans and the British and the other uh, Western allies, they're all listening into these phone calls and gathering intelligence. Oh, here's where the Russians are. Here's where they're going to move their units tomorrow. They have this incredible amount of intelligence uh, that's been very helpful to the Ukrainians. So I, Donald Trump's being in the White House, I think I, the most likely explanation of what happened is Putin figured Trump would get a second term and then he could invade Ukraine and the U.S. wouldn't help the Ukrainians. And if, he, if we hadn't helped the Ukrainians by now, I think that Putin would control Ukraine and he'd be on his way to, you know, Moldova or whatever country was on his list to go next to. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And since we are on the topic of war, 
Do you think is similar of what is happening now in Israel and Palestine? If if Donald Trump was uh, in office, this was still going to happen? I, I think the difference between Trump and Biden can be pretty clearly seen here. So Hamas uh, goes out and slaughters about 1,400 Israelis and just brutally, terribly does so. I mean, we've now got video pictures and stuff after 40 days that, you know, they, they you know, it's one thing to kill com combatants, but they were killing women and children and babies and they were torturing some of them and raping the women and then killing them making parents watch as they kill their children, then they kill the parents and vice versa. And, and so the soldiers of Hamas and the leaders of Hamas are legitimate targets under uh, thousands of years of tradition of warfare and of current um, treaties, conventions, and, milita and military law. The, the, there actually is a law of war, and they've grossly violated it. The soldiers and the leaders are legitimate targets. Women and children and the sick and the disabled and people in hospitals, babies who are in incubators in Gaza, those are not legitimate targets. And Benjamin Netanyahu, a personally corrupt leader, uh, is, sees an opportunity here to go after the Palestinians. He denies that. He says it's not true. I think the evidence that he's doing that is, is pretty clear. And instead of surgically going into Gaza to find the Hamas leaders, they've you know, bombed houses, blocked Israel, uh, uh, Palestinians from leaving, um, uh, cut off food and fuel. Some food and fuel and water that's been let through has been stolen, I'm sure, by Hamas, because that's the nature of, of Hamas and, and what it is. Um, if Trump were president, he would be telling Netanyahu, just go do whatever you want. Kill all those Muslims. Remember, Trump wanted back then to block anyone who's a Muslim from entering the country from six nations. And he has now said as president, he wants to round up Muslims and he wants to bar anybody from coming into the country who's a Muslim. Um, Biden has been not very effectively, it looks like, but Biden has clearly been telling Netanyahu, knock it off. Go after legitimate military targets. Do not go after women, children, sick, disabled, etc. And uh, there's not a lot he can do about it except to say, well, we're going to cut back our aid to you because you know, our biggest foreign aid in America goes to or did before the Ukraine war went to Israel. Um, but it, it, it was still an important thing to think about. Donald Trump had never done a single day of public service before he became president. He'd never held a lower office. He'd never served on a government panel, a blue ribbon citizens panel or something. You know, when, when I was a young man, I lived in a rural community. When I worked for the Los Angeles Times in San Francisco, I lived in the forest about 75 miles away. And five of the 175 children in the school district were mine, 3%. And so I became the chairman of two citizens committees to do things for the school district because everybody in town said, you got the biggest interest in this, right? You got 3% of the whole enrollment of the school. Donald's never even done anything like that. He's done literally zero work. He doesn't know anything. He claims to be the world's greatest expert on, on 22 subjects. Well, first of all, nobody can be the world's greatest expert on, on more than one subject. And in most subjects, I don't think any one person can be the expert. 
Donald says that one of the areas where he is not just the world's greatest expert, but the world's greatest expert in all time is tax policy. Okay. I am a world-recognized expert on tax policy. I just earlier this week spoke at the United Nations Development Conference in New York City about tax policy. And so I have a reputation for being an expert on this. So Donald Trump, when he was sued, when he sued one of my uh, uh, former New York Times colleagues over a book he wrote, was asked under oath, uh, Mr. Trump, what do you know about accounting? Accounting, Trump said? I don't know anything about accounting. You sure about that, Mr. Trump? Oh, no, I don't know anything about accounting. I leave that to the accountants. And the, the lawyer very carefully tied him down with numerous questions that he doesn't know anything about accounting. You can't know tax if you don't know accounting. I had to learn accounting to become the New York Times tax reporter. And I ultimately taught at a graduate school of accounting, a graduate school of business to accountants, you know, would-be or already accountants uh, getting their, their MBA or their master of accounting degrees. Um, it's just an example of how he doesn't know anything. He, he didn't know why is there a memorial at the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor? How can you not know? I mean, you're not from America. You know what happened to Pearl Harbor in 1941, right? No. No, that's when the Japanese attacked the United States on December 7, 1941, right after dawn, Sunday morning. Trump didn't know that. Trump thought Finland was part of Russia. Uh, I mean, his 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 I own do know people... that that is not uh, part of Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump's own people, his his national security advisor, John Bolton, his chief of staff, Marine General Kelly, have written books in which they've talked about Trump doesn't know anything. And and that's true. I mean, he, he didn't know about the gambling business, which I found hard to believe when I first met him. But I turned out very quickly. You didn't know anything about it. It's all fraud. He's a con man. So in the Palestinian uh, uh, problem, it, Palestinian war, I mean, essentially it's Hamas attacks Israel and Israel now attacks everybody in Gaza. Um, Biden has been trying to say, you got to follow the rules of war. You got to pay attention to the rules. You can go kill Hamas. You can kill the Hamas soldiers. But you're not supposed to kill children. You're not supposed to put people in hospitals' lives in danger by cutting off fuel for the hospital to run. Trump would have said, hey, go get them. Go get them. Because Donald hates Muslims. He hates black people. He hates Muslims. Um, uh, he hates Puerto Ricans. He has a long, well-documented history establishing this. So I think that's the difference in, in that. And, you know, the differences between the Palestinians and the Israelis, these are ancient... Uh, uh, differences that, I don't know, they're not going to get solved in my lifetime. I'm, I'm sure of that and probably not that of my grandchildren. Maybe never. Mm -hmm. So you don't think anything was going to change in the Palestinian and Israel problem, but uh, it still was going to happen, but you think the approach of solving it was going to be different? I, I Well, I don't think that... Um, what you're seeing happen now is going to solve anything. You can't kill everybody to solve your problem because everybody has relatives or people they have an affinity for, and you're just going to create new enemies. 
That just doesn't work. That I mean, Hamas is a terrible organization. They use their own people as human shields. They do terrible things. Okay, so they're zealots who do terrible things. But you can't solve that problem by trying to kill everybody in Hamas because you'll get other people who will say, well, you know, that was outrageous what you did. Look at all these. I mean, what have been 11,500 Palestinians have died. And what that tells you is that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, who are really well-trained military people, they did not go in there and were not told to go in there with a scalpel to cut out Hamas and its leaders. They were told to take a meat axe. And they're doing what they were told to do, which is what soldiers tend to do. That is not, you know, I've, I've, had, I've, I've written a little bit about this on the internet and have people accuse me of being anti-Semite. Then I go, criticizing Benjamin Netanyahu's government is not being anti-Semitic. He's as accountable as anybody else. Israel is entitled to exist and exist in peace and not have innocent people slaughtered. And so are the Palestinians. It's a question of how you prosecute these things. There's no question that what Hamas did is beyond the pale. It's totally indefensible. There's no way you can defend killing 1,400 civilians. And, 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 and not just killing them, but in many cases, very clearly torturing them before you kill them. That, that's absolutely indefensible. But that doesn't mean that then Netanyahu has the right to go do the same thing to six or eight times as many Palestinians. Um, and look, these are really difficult issues. This is not an area that I have any particularly deep expertise on. I just, I, I'm a journalist and I can see what's going on in these issues. But if Trump was president, he would be egging on Benjamin Netanyahu because he has no history of anything. Um, you know, I once uh, said to Donald, I said, do you know where we get the word algebra? Donald looked at me like that was a really weird thing to say. And he said, algebra? I said, yeah, Donald, algebra. You know, your, your businesses use algebra all the time. The gambling business is based on uh, math, algebra. And he goes, well, where did we get algebra? And I said, it comes from a Persian scholar, a Muslim named Al-Jabra. And, and he's just dumbfounded. I said, oh, by the way, Donald, you should know that people used to be put to death for proposing the idea of zero. Literally, there were people burned at the stake for saying there's a number called zero. He didn't know anything about that. He, 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 he doesn't, you know... He's claimed he knows more about the Middle East than American generals who have gone to war college and graduate school and learned the language, and lived there. He knows more than they do. I mean, this is just absurd. So whatever would have happened if, this, if Hamas had done this when Trump was president, the reaction from Netanyahu's government would have been much worse than it is. I understand. Uh, so you see, we have elections approaching soon. Do you think, uh, what do you think are the results of the election? Do you think Donald Trump uh, has anything to do, play a role in so, the elections, big role? So, so Fideus, in 2015, when Trump announced, I said he can get to the White House. And I said he certainly can get the Republican nomination. And I, I hope he doesn't get to the White House, but he could. And I mean, a lot of people in my business and in politics just said, you're nuts. That's crazy. And, and I'm a well-known national figure in the United States. They just they thought that was crazy. It turned out I was right. My view now is 
no, Trump can't get back to the White House unless the Kremlin, uh, the North Koreans, um, uh, the Chinese really interfere in our election to help him uh, or something like that happens. The polls right now are showing that in five of the six states that are could go either way, Trump is ahead. Here's the problem. There's two problems with this. The first one is when Barack Obama was at this point in his first term, almost three years in, the polls all showed he couldn't get reelected. These polls are not reliable. They tell you how people feel today, not when they get to go to the polls. Secondly, there's an inherent problem with polling in America. I, when I was a, a teenager and a, in my 20s, I used to make extra money on the side working for polling companies. So I have some experience with this. Uh, there's a pollster where I live in Rochester, New York, who wrote a book called Poll, P-O-L-L, all caps, hyphen, arised, polarized. And Rochester has always been a big center of survey work and polling work. And in his book, John Geraci says, less than 1% of the people who are called will respond to a poll. Now, when I was doing polling, you would get, oh, one in four calls, one in three, somewhere in that range. Uh, if it was it dropped to one in 10, I would have walked away because it wouldn't have been worthwhile. Well, when less than one in 100 people respond, you're not getting a random result. The object of a poll is to call a randomly select people. In a country the size of America, if you get 1,504 responses and they're truly random, you're going to be pretty accurate. But if more than 99% of people won't talk to you, then the, you're not getting a, a random, a truly random and trustworthy result. In addition, when secondary questions are asked or sideways questions, support for Trump collapses. The poll, the Senate, the New York Times Siena poll that showed Trump beating Biden in five of the six battleground states. When they asked if Mr. Trump were to be convicted of a felony, would you still vote for him? And his collapse just his, his support just collapses. People are not going to vote for Donald Trump if he is a convicted felon. Uh, next, and he's likely to be by the time we get around to next November. Next, Donald is, as I predicted, becoming increasingly uh, extreme, if not nutty, uh, uh, crazy in his behavior. Um, he made a, uh, in both in a speech and in writing. So you can't, this wasn't a gaffe, this wasn't an error. He invoked the language of Hitler and Mussolini this week. He called people who oppose him vermin, you know, uh, rodents and cockroaches, those are vermin. He was dehumanizing these uh, people who disagree with him. He announced he's going to create massive camps, concentration camps, you can call them that, but massive camps, that's what they would be. The, he's going to invoke the Insurrection Act so that he can have the American military be used against the American people. And he did that on the day that he walked out of the White House and held a Bible upside down outside the church. Um, those kinds of things are not going to sit well with people who turn out to vote. And one more thing that is a benefit to the Democrats, the Republicans are trying since a U.S. Supreme Court decision a year ago called Dobbs, 
uh, trying to make abortion a crime. And Donald Trump, when he was running for president, said that a woman who has an abortion should be punished. None of the, in the abortion movement up to that point would ever say that. If you ever asked any of the, the people who want to stop abortions and say, well, should we punish the women or the doctors? They go, no, 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 no. We just want to stop the abortions. There's been a bill introduced in one of the states, I think South Carolina, to make women who have an abortion subject to the death penalty. <laughs> and in every single election in America, there's been about 20 of them, more than 20 of them, where Dobbs, the decision, can a woman have an abortion, has either been directly on the ballot or indirectly because the two candidates had very clear views about this. Uh, the public says, no, we don't want the government preventing people from getting abortions. A woman should be in control of her body. This is a losing issue for the Republicans. But instead of recognizing that and backing away, what they're doing is doubling down and they're proposing even more severe sanctions. They're trying in Wisconsin to uh, where people voted that you know, a woman should be able to have an abortion if she wants one under certain circumstances. They're trying to say the courts can't rule on this. Um, uh, and I, I think that will hurt Trump because it, come November of next year, you have to make a choice. You don't get to pick Donald Trump versus uh, anything else. You got to pick Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Uh, and, and then Biden has produced this remarkable economy. Uh, the U.S. has the lowest inflation rate of the 20 major economies. It has the lowest unemployment rate of the 20 major economies. More jobs have been created in the last three years under Biden than all the Republican presidents since 1953. That's Eisenhower, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, both Bushes and Donald Trump. Um, that's going to eventually seep into the public consciousness. Most Americans now will tell you the economy's in terrible shape. That's not what the data shows. And I think we'll see that begin to change as time passes. Maybe not, but I think we will. Very interesting. Uh, because I understood that you know so much about the topic of, of politics, how does one uh, person becomes a president? Is it like... Uh, money that plays the role is like to be beautiful is it to have strong like what what makes a president yeah you just asked one of the most important basic questions that american journalists don't ask and i mean that's a really terrific issue and by the way my expertise is not in politics it's in policy just to be clear um so uh, historically in america political parties picked candidates there was a, when i was growing up there was lots of talk about smoke-filled rooms where the leaders of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, smoking cigars, would, uh, all men would sit around in a room and say, we want this senator or that governor to be our candidate. And they would make choices. The United States Supreme Court in a series of decisions called Buckley, Vallejo, and Citizens United have completely changed that. Um, the Supreme Court has said that campaign contributions are the equivalent of free speech. Basically, you can't regulate them. And as a result of this, and the rise of something called dark money, I mean, it's one thing if, and I've never made a campaign contribution in my life because I'm a journalist, but if I give $200 to a candidate in my name, it's a public record. They have my name, my occupation, my address, you can look it up. But the Supreme Court has allowed what are called dark money groups, where you can give money to an organization that doesn't have to disclose who you are. 
And so the American oligarchs, the billionaires, have been giving money to these organizations and overwhelmingly the billionaires in America are on the right, not on the left. There are some on the left, but um, Elon Musk, you know, who's pretty clearly anti-Semitic, authoritarian, he comes from South Africa, it's the richest man in the world, individual in the world, maybe with the exception of people who run a country like Saudi Arabia, uh, richest businessman in the world. Uh, you know, he's donated a lot of money. The Koch brothers, K-O-C-H, who are heavily into fossil fuel industries, uh, paper towels, other things. Uh, there's only one of the two brothers left, but they have spent hundreds and hundreds, probably billions of dollars at this point, um, uh, giving money that you can't trace, giving it to these dark money organizations to support candidates. And so what happens today is to run for president, you have to raise a lot of money. And as soon as the money runs out, you have to withdraw. So Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, a Republican who is black, was running for president. Earlier this week, he dropped out because he can't raise any money. Nobody thinks he has a chance to become president. So they're not going to give him any money. People who can raise money get to run. Well, that means, say, you're Barack Obama. I mean, pretty unlikely guy to be elected president of the United States. You know, just his name, Barack Hussein Obama. Uh, a guy who was a U.S. senator, mostly by luck. Uh, the Democrats ran him for the U.S. Senate from Illinois because they were certain the Republican candidate was going to win. All the polls said he would win overwhelmingly. And then one of the newspapers in Chicago got a judge to unseal his divorce records. Not Obama's. He's never been divorced. But the Republican candidate, he was married to the movies and TV star Jerry Ryan, who played Seven of Nine in uh, Star Trek Voyager. And it suddenly comes out that the Republican family values candidate wanted his wife to go to sex clubs where he could watch other men having sex with his wife. Well, it just destroyed his candidacy. I mean, it just completely fell apart. And Barack Obama becomes a senator from Illinois. And he immediately starts running for president. I mean, you know, my joke is that Barack Obama served in the Senate long enough to have a cup of coffee. And he resonates with the public because he's a very eloquent speaker and he had a message. His campaign was hope. And he gets to the White House. But to get to the White House, he had to win over the American oligarchs who finance campaigns. And he didn't get all of them. The Koch brothers never supported him. Bezos would never, uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, the second richest person in America, would never have voted for him. Uh, Warren Buffett probably would have voted for him. But you had to get rich people. And so the way you become president of the United States now is you get public attention, you persuade Wall Street and other wealthy interests that you are not a serious threat to their money. Uh, you might be a critic, but you're not a real threat to them, or you're going to advocate for what they want. Then you get more money and you can run for president. And then the trick is you've got to get the public behind you. And um, you can do that. You know, you can get yourself to the White House. What we're going to see change in America is we're going to see younger candidates. Um, Donald Trump is two, two and a half years older than me. Joe Biden is uh, a year and a half, two and a half years older than that. 
Nancy Pelosi, when she stepped down as speaker, uh, was um, uh, almost 80 years old. We have a whole bunch of members of Congress and the leadership, uh, Mitch McConnell, who are all uh, my age or older. And we're about to see, I think, a big shift where people in their 40s, 50s, and perhaps early 60s are going to rise in prominence after the 2024 elections. Okay, so to rephrase what you said, you need to have a, a message in the beginning to convince the people that uh, the uh, oligarchs to get behind you, that to give you money. After you get the money from oligarchs, you need to get the public with you with your message for the message to resonate with the public. And then after you have all this stuff, then you have a good chance to to go. Yes. And the only thing I would add to that is you've got to first get the public's attention. Then you can start to get some money. Then if you get more attention, you got to get the the oligarch class behind you because the, the most people don't donate to campaigns. It, the the New York Times, which does a lot of really great reporting, back 20 years ago, ran this story showing that uh, a very, very large proportion of money in presidential campaigns comes from a handful of zip codes. Those are postal mailing uh, areas used by the post office. And that they were mostly on the west side of Los Angeles or in Manhattan a very disproportionate amount of money from those areas. And there's lots of rich people elsewhere around the country. There's rich, there's billionaires in Rochester, New York. There's, there's uh, rich business owners in Colorado, but it was the west side of Los Angeles and Manhattan that were predominant in uh, fundraising for presidential campaign. So seeing all the candidates now, like, uh... Where, where, where do you think is likely to happen, a prediction? Well, let me preface this by saying that my predictions on Donald Trump so far have been perfect. I haven't been wrong about a single thing. He hasn't done everything I said he would do, but everything I have said he would do that's come to pass is correct. So in American language, you know, we have baseball. And if you're a, a batter and your batting average is 250, meaning every fourth time you're at bat, you get on base you're considered a really good player. If you're at, at 300, you're a superstar. My batting average is 1,000. It's perfect. I, I think what we're going to see is, I think what we're going to see going forward is this. Uh, Joe Biden will be the nominee of the Democrats, and he will win, barring something unexpected. I mean, you know, he get hit by a bus. But barring something unexpected, that will happen. Donald Trump at some point will have to make a decision. He either will tell his followers, if, he if Donald believes at some point that he cannot get to the White House for whatever reason, because he was convicted of a crime, although he can serve as president from jail, there's nothing that would prevent him from being in prison and being president of the United States at the same time. Something I was the first person to point out in America and is now widely understood. Um, if Donald... <laughs> comes to realize that he cannot become president. He will not win. I believe that he will say to his followers, don't vote. It's all rigged. There's no point in voting. Don't participate in this corrupt process because that would allow him to save face. And to Donald, you know, the law, losing the, the race in 2020, that was the most embarrassing event of his life. You know, it was more embarrassing than the, the women who, you know, said that... Uh, 
He's not, he's extremely under endowed, but worse than that to him. And we all know how men think about that issue of, you know, size. Um, so uh, if he knows he can't get to the White House, he will tell his voters to stay home. If he thinks he can get to the White House um, and he gets the Republican nomination, then I think you will see a big focus by the Democrats to provoke Trump to say crazier and crazier things. And you'll see lots of news coverage about concentration camps, uh, rounding people up, separating children from their parents. You're going to see lots of videos. You know, there are children, the Trump administration separated from their parents at the border of Mexico who still have not been reunited with their parents because they didn't keep records. They just took the kids and they didn't keep records to trace them. And you're going to see a big emphasis on that. Um, I think before this is over, there will be more blood. Um, I, I'm sorry about that. I'm, I'm just being realistic. There are people who will, uh, we've already had a bunch of people who've, who've taken violence as their approach. We had the man who broke into the home of Nancy Pelosi when she was House Speaker. I guess she'd left the House Speakership at that point, but uh, he had a hammer. He hit her 80-year, 85-year-old husband in the head with it. With the police standing there, he hit him with a hammer because uh, the police had been called. Um, uh, we've had attempts on on politicians left and right. We've had, you know, Steve Scalise, the number two House Republican, was shot at a baseball game where he was playing a congressional, you know, Democrats play Republicans baseball game. He was shot, seriously wounded. Um, Trump keeps calling for violence. He has called now for citizens to arrest the judge in his New York civil fraud trial and to arrest the attorney general of New York. There's something in America called citizen's arrest. And if you personally witness a felony crime, a murder, a rape, a robbery, you can arrest the person involved, but it's a risky legal strategy. You could end up being charged if you do it. But he's calling for people to do these things. So there will be some extremists and, and thoughtless people who will commit violent crimes. But it, in terms of numbers, it's going to be small and insignificant. You're not going to see an insurrection like you did on January 6th because the U.S. Justice Department and the FBI have been incredibly diligent. There's been more than a thousand people who took part in that who are now convicted criminals. And they're serving prison sentences as long as 22 years for trying to overthrow the American government. So you're not going to see that kind of uprising. But do I think we'll see some individual acts of violence by people with guns or hammers or uh, possibly bombs? Yeah, there's going to be some of that um, between now and, and the election and after the election. Because Trump has unleashed horrible things in the United States. Interesting. Uh, since, since I started, uh, I like you and respecting your opinion a lot through this podcast. Uh, I am curious to hear your thoughts because one of my favorite people in the world is Elon Musk. So I'm curious to hear uh -huh. your thoughts. If you have anything to say about him, any interesting facts or stories that are unseen by the public. Well, Elon Musk is... Uh a man who has made a great deal of money off of other people's ideas. He didn't think up Tesla. He didn't think up eBay, these other places he was an investor and they made a lot of money. 
He was just an early investor, had money and took over these enterprises. So the first thing to understand is that he's not this, I mean, he's a brilliant guy, no question about that, but he he's not the creator of these things. He's the guy who got in there very early and made a ton of money, okay? Um, it's become very clear from his own statements, many of which he's being denounced for this very week, that he is a an anti-Semite. And uh, frankly, I would say a vicious anti-Semite. He has uh, uh, re repeated uh, uh, or praised at his uh, website that used to be called Twitter uh, comments by people that are along the lines of, you know, Jews secretly run the world. You know, Jews are something like one in 500 people in the world. I mean, they're a tiny little group. And I, I've never understood this antagonism, this anti-Semitism, like racism. To me, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, why should you hate someone because they're a Catholic or a Muslim or a Jew or they um, uh, vote for Democrats or Republicans? I mean, just, it just, just inherently to me doesn't make sense. Okay. Um, he, uh, like most very super wealthy people, tries to influence public policy. And the most dangerous area of this is that he has a large number of satellites for communication. I think Starlink is the name of the program. And he has turned off that information system for the Ukrainian military, which, and turned it back on, but he turned it off at one point. He could turn it off at any moment. That effectively makes him an agent of Vladimir Putin. And, you know, Vladimir Putin is a man who it is not hard to understand. He's not a cipher. You know, you can read his own writings. You can read his speeches. Uh, you can read what smart observers of him have written about. And he's a really easy guy to figure out in his views of the world. Uh, he wants to put the old Soviet Union back together again. He wants to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And Musk admires authoritarians. And remember, Musk grew up in uh, apartheid South Africa, and he's a white guy. Uh, he was also a prince who was treated by his mother like, you know, you can do no wrong, you're this, you're this little prince. And all of those affect, you know, how he behaves, uh, how badly he treats his workers. There's a big movement right now in Sweden, to, which is like Norway, moving very quickly towards electric vehicles to not allow Teslas because of his abuse of uh, workers. Uh, the, the history of the world since industrialization began and the first big fortunes arose from industrialization, you know, around the time of the US Civil War, the 1860s, we began to see these gigantic fortunes from manufacturing, fortunes the likes of which the world had never seen. So in America, you had Carnegie in steel and railroads and Vanderbilt in railroads and um, uh, shipping magnates uh, and, and others. And all of those people have had an influence on society out of proportion to their numbers and sometimes even out of proportion to their fortunes. And in the new environment now in the U.S., where the Supreme Court has ruled that dollars contributed to politicians are the same as speaking on behalf of a politician and that you can secretly give money, not directly to the politician, but to people who are promoting that politician, that magnifies the power of people like Musk. 
Uh, on the other hand, money doesn't always win. We have lots and lots of campaign history in America where the lesser funded candidate won because they got off the boat. And so Musk for the rest of his life is going to do what he wants to do, which he has a right to do. Uh, but there's going to be, I think, a lot more pushback as time goes by uh, because of his anti-Semitism, his support for the Kremlin, and his mistreatment of workers. Any one of those would be a problem. You put all three of them together, I think there's a, going to be a fairly large segment of the public who doesn't want to uh, who want to minimize his influence on policy. Wow, very interesting, very interesting. Uh, I didn't know anything of this uh, fax uh, uh, that you said, and uh, but I'm not sure if uh, uh, how we can say anti-Semitism uh, and how you can define and what statements and all this stuff. Uh, uh, you can't defy that, but uh, very, still, very, 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 very interesting. I, I have a question that I ask every guest in the podcast. I give you one sure. trillion dollars. How do you spend it in the world to have the maximum positive impact? That's a, that's also a very, very good question, and it's essentially an unlimited amount of money—a trillion dollars. Um. <clears throat> And I would, first of all, create an, a nonprofit entity to which I give the money. I don't need the trillion dollars. I'm a wealthy enough man that I don't have to work. I mean, I'm old, but I don't have to work for the rest of my life. Okay, I don't need money. So I'm going to turn that money over and put it under the control of a nonprofit public service organization. My first inclination would be to create a series of universities that are completely free to students from various disciplines whose academic achievement and seriousness mean that it's worthwhile to invest in them. And by free, I mean you don't pay tuition, you don't pay for your books, you don't pay for your meals, you don't pay for your lodging, and we give you a little bit of spending money so that you can totally focus on your studies. And if you don't perform at a very high level, we throw you out. We don't hesitate about that. You know, you got this privilege. And to do that, I would, I would set up multiple universities. You know, university that's uh, focused on STEM, science, technology, engineering, that's manufacturing, that's one. Uh, then uh, one focused on, um, uh, political science, economics, that general area. Another one that's on the arts, because you, you know we don't want to have a society of drones. Across America, one of the worst things we've done is in many high schools, we no longer have drama or art. We do have football, American football. Boy, we've protected American football. But we, we need to have an understanding of what sociologists call the other, capital T, capital O, the other. And you only get that through arts and literature. So uh, a college that teaches uh, literature, um, uh, uh, filmmaking, um, podcasting, you know, all of these artistic things, uh, 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 musical writing. I have a daughter who's a, a lyricist. One of my eight children is a lyricist and a librettist. 
She does musicals. She writes the, the, the words for the songs with a composing partner, and she writes the text in between the songs. That's being a librettist. So a college that does that. So I, I'd probably set up a group of universities. In 1994, Bill Gates uh, bought something called the Codex Hammer. It was a uh, manuscript from the Middle Ages. And uh, he renamed it. Uh, it had been known as the Codex Leicester. And it was renamed by Armand Hammer, the, the oil magnate who made his fortune in Russia and ran Occidental, the biggest uh, oil company, independent oil company in the world. And uh, Armand Hammer died. Bill Gates bought it for several tens of millions of dollars. Um, I wrote a column back then for, I think it was the Chronicle of Philanthropy. It was a freelance piece in which I said, this is beneath you, Mr. Gates. You have built the biggest fortune in America. And this is buying a toy. Uh, this is like William Randolph Hearst, the publisher and, and mining magnate who built Hearst Castle, uh, Xanadu in the movie uh, Citizen Kane. And you're wasting an opportunity here. And I said, you should do something with this money that's worthy of it. My first suggestion is that you create in Seattle Gates University, absolutely free, just the way I described it. No books, uh, room, board, and a little bit of spending cash for students who really perform. Um, I, I think in the long run, you would get the greatest benefit from that. And it's something that's self-perpetuating as you create more very skilled people who don't have to, as I did, I went to college full-time for eight years while I was working as an investigative reporter those same eight years and raising, uh, I guess I got finished at six kids. Um, I didn't get the some of the education I wished I'd had because I didn't have the money. I think there are lots of very smart people. Many of them, you know, brains are randomly distributed. There are rich families with stupid kids and there are poor families with geniuses. And um, I, I think in the long run, you get the greatest compound return on your money investing in human minds. I've often said, and I've written in my economics books, that the most valuable asset the American people have isn't their military, it isn't the value of their stocks and bonds. It is the gray matter between the ears of little children. And if we rigorously develop that through education, we will be much better off than if we do anything else. And long after I was saying this, a um, economist at the University of Chicago, where I went 50 years ago as a, a graduate fellow, um, did a study in which he came out and argued that every dollar spent on a child from conception to its first 180 days after birth. So we're talking about 15 months, right? Conception, birth, six months later, pays itself back at a compound interest rate of 7%. 7% your money doubles every 10 years. If you can find an investment that's guaranteed to pay you 7%, go put all your money in it. You'll do really well. And so I think that a trillion dollars would best be spent on um, creating multiple in different places, um, totally free, but totally merit-based and highly demanding to stay in universities that would cover the whole plank.
And, you know, we're on the edge, Fidesz, of a huge change in the world. Um, I, you know, I used to teach the law of the ancient world, the business regulation law of the ancient world, and then the tax and property law in another class. I now teach um, pre-law students getting ready to go to law school. But all of these classes for the last 15 years, I tell them the same thing. America was born in the agrarian age. The agrarian age began 10,000 years ago, and it was the dominant uh, economic model until the middle of the 19th century. And then beginning in the late 18th century and fully developed by the late 19th century, so late 1700s, late 1800s, became the industrial age. And it was first the British, then the Germans, then the Americans in developing the industrial era. I was born in 1948. That was the industrial era. Now, about 1975 to 1980, that period, we shifted. We entered the digital age. That's what we live in now. The reason we can do this interview across the ocean is the digital age. Computers, the materials that are needed to make computers, um, huge advances in our understanding and our ability to construct a universe using our brains and digits. We are now on the cusp of leaving the digital age. That doesn't mean it'll go away. We still grow crops. We still make steel. We'll still have digital products. But we are on the cusp of the genetic age or the biological age, if you want to want and that is an era where miraculous things will happen. The fortunes that are going to be created will vastly be vastly larger than the digital age. There'll be different fortunes because in the digital age, if you had a smart idea and a couple of hardworking people, you could make a billion dollar fortune. But the genetic age is different. There's a lot more teamwork and groups of people who have to work in it. But, um, I tell my students who are, what, they're 18 to 22 years old. I say, should you choose to have children, this will not happen to you and your spouse. It will not happen to your children, but it almost certainly will happen to your grandchildren and absolutely certainly your great-grandchildren. They will be able to go down to a store that I'll call Designer Jeans, capital D, capital G, G-E-N-E-S, Designer Jeans and say, well, we want to have as our first child a girl. and We want her to have mom's height. We'd like her to have dad's hair color. Uh, we'd like her to have this and that. And you basically design the child you want, and they will take the mother's genes and the father's genes, artificially splice them together, and produce that child for you. Now, in the beginning of this, it will be a little bit like when the air travel business began. We almost never have plane crashes anymore at least not in the developed modern world, in Europe, North America, uh, uh, East Asia, and uh, Australia, New Zealand. They're very rare. Um, uh, last time we had a, a fatal commercial jetliner crash was near my home, about 50 miles from my home, and it was, I think, six years ago, and there were only 50 people on the plane. Um, but back when air travel started, there were lots of crashes. When I was a boy in the 50s, I remember in the news, it'd be, oh, another plane crashed, another plane crashed. And my father would, would fly on planes. So I was like a little alarmed about this. Um, he flies a passenger. So in the beginning of designer jeans, 
there'll be mistakes. And the example I give my students is, I want you to imagine that this girl who's been designed by the parents is born exactly as they wanted, except she has a size 15 shoe, big hairy foot with ugly toenails growing out of the middle of her forehead. And can't remove it without killing her. So she's gonna have to live with this for her whole life. I mean, this is a nightmare, right? And then I ask them, what do you do about it? And I will tell you, most of the students, well, their initial reaction, especially the male students, their initial reaction is, well, we just don't allow that. And I go, really, name me some scientific advance we haven't allowed. Uh, uh, shall we start with nuclear fission and nuclear fusion, which gave us atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs? Of course, we're going to use it. That's not a real viable answer. And the ultimate answer, of course, is you pay money, right? The designer gene company and its insurers will pay this poor child with the foot coming out of their head a fortune. And then she'll wear some kind of hat over her head to not look so bad. But once we've refined that technology, it will be like jet planes. They'll almost never crash. They'll almost never be a mistake with the designer child. We're going to be able to bring back, they're already working on trying to revive woolly mammoths. We have liquid blood and we have DNA from the tissues of mammoths that were frozen in the tundra. Um, the idea of the movie Jurassic Park, that's not crazy. We're not there, but will we be there someday? Yeah, we can bring back velociraptors if we're stupid enough to do that, and T-Rexes and Stegosauruses and even though Stegosaurus died out 50 million years before T-Rex, we can have them together. Um, we'll be able to, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the suggestions of people in the pork business has been sort of dreaming about, boy, if we could only have pigs without legs. Because when you slaughter a pig, you got to get a butcher in there. They got to do all that cutting to separate the legs from the carcass. And it takes time and money. What if we could just grow the pig where it's just a ham ready to go? Well, we'll probably develop something like that. Uh, we will grow new organs for people. And in fact, we're already working on that, growing people a, a new lung, a new heart, a new this or that. So our mastery of genetics will completely remake the world. If you and I could come back in 500 years, the world won't look at all like it does now. And I want you to give a little perspective about that. If you were born in Hammurabi's time, 4,000 years ago, and you were transported to the year 1800, a little over 200 years ago, things would be pretty much the same. There'd be uh, people walking, there'd be uh, carts that you'd pull with a horse or a goat or human people. There'd be irrigation by flooding the land. Um, you'd recognize the world around you. If you brought that person forward to the year 1900, the very first thing they would recognize is what's all this noise? Instead of the quiet of nature, there would be these machines, there would be trains and uh, all this noise. Okay, the world would be totally unrecognizable to them. Bring them forward to the year 2000, another 100, just 75 years. But 2000 is probably better. You, you suddenly people would have wristwatches like mine that have more computing power than when we sent the first men to the moon. There would be color television. There'd be communication like we're doing across great distance that's instantaneous. What a change. Now, jump forward, probably, I would guess, somewhere between 50 and 100 years, somewhere in that range. 
and you're going to see these genetic things arise. And think how much money people will spend. You know, it turns out you have the BRAC2 gene, you're a woman, and you get breast cancer. Well, we can cure that now permanently, not just, not just give you chemotherapy or radiation therapy and a knife. We can actually fix this. And the money people will pay for this is going to be off the chart. It's going to change our economics enormously because governments are going to end up paying this for most people. Uh, the world's going to be very, very different. And that's why if you gave me a trillion dollars, I would put it into education. Education, not just to develop new technologies, but to develop the legal theory, the sociological theory, and the arts, like novels and movies and things, that are needed to create a stable society and where people understand these things. So uh, I have a question. My question is about how to ask better questions. <laughs> uh, because you've okay, been in that's... the industry for a lot of yeah. time and I... you mentioned that you are good. I lecture on this. I, I, uh, I have a lecture I give that I used to call Good reporting skills are good dating skills. Some people kind of object to that, so I don't use it anymore. But the theory of it was interviewing someone as a journalist is should be, it's highly comparable to meeting a blind date. You know, somebody fixes you up and you agree you're going to meet somewhere in a bar or a restaurant. Um, if you walk up, if you're a guy and you walk up to the woman you're going to meet, you go, oh, hi, I'm sorry I was late. Um, I live with my mother in the basement and I had to take care of the cats things are not going to go well. Um, the way things go well is if you've done a little bit of research, just if it was just asking your friend who fixed you up, you know, tell me about this person. How old is she? Or if it's a woman, how old is he? Um, what are they interested in? Where do they go to school? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, why are you fixing this up? What are the reasons? If you're a journalist, you're going to go interview a general. Go find out what he, what he wrote. I mean, if he's a general, he probably has a master's degree or a doctoral degree. What's his? What was his dissertation? What has he written in military journals? You know about warfare and things like that. Uh, who's his family? Where are they from? Be prepared. Uh, and then, if you're a guy, especially meeting a woman, don't talk about yourself. Ask her about herself because. Women are used to meeting men where um, they go on and on and on about themselves and how great they are. And then some of them will literally say, well, enough about, you know, what I think about me. What do you think about me? No. Hey, tell me about you. And then don't ask why. W-H-Y. Do not ask that question. That is an aggressive question psychologically. Why are you wearing that? Uh, coat. Does that make you feel comfortable or defensive? I assume defensive. But if you say, you know, that's an interesting coat. I, I've been fascinated by it. Tell me about uh, where you can get one of those. You get a different response. What is the reason is much better than why. Because you want the object of a journalism interview and the object of a blind date is exactly the same. It's intimacy. It's just at the end of the day, a different kind of intimacy that you're seeking. And people want to tell you about themselves and about their lives 
but they're hesitant unless they trust you. So you need to build trust. So you want to ask simple questions that logically flow from one to the next. Simple questions. Don't go on and on and on and set up the question. Uh, in, in journalism all the time, you will see press conferences that are live where the journalist preens for the audience. Look how smart I am that I know all these other facts. And then they get to the question. Just ask the damn question. Uh, if, if it's a baseball, my, the other analogy I make is to a baseball game. There are people who walk up to the, with the bat to, because they're the batter and they stretch and pull and they do this and that and they put dirt on their hands and they turn around for the, just step up to the plate and hit the damn ball. Uh, then pay very close attention to the verbs that the person you're interviewing or you have a date with is using. And here's a perfect example. Uh, you're a journalist and you're interviewing some people about a shooting that took place in a bar where some people died. And you get one of the witnesses. And the witness says, well, you know, a bunch of us guys got off work and decided to go down to Bill's bar and have a drink. And there's nothing going on. We're the only people in Bill's bar. So we finished our beers and we ambled down the street to Harry's bar. And we walk in the door and as soon as we're in the door, bam, guns go off. Now, what's the most important word I just said? It's ambled. You didn't walk. You didn't run. You didn't hop, skip, and jump. You didn't went. You ambled. So if 20 minutes later in the interview, if I'm interviewing you, Fideus, and I say, remember when you were telling me about when you ambled down to uh, the, the second bar? you will instinctively, without recognizing it, know that I was listening to what you said. I was paying attention to you. And I, if you're dating, whether it's a man or a woman you're talking to on a blind date, there's almost nothing more powerful than I'm completely listening to you. I am paying attention. I'm absorbing what you're saying. And once people trust you, I, I, I had a, a, a very wealthy man who was married to one of the most famously beautiful women in the world. I didn't know he was married to until she walked in the room and my jaw dropped, okay? And he was telling the other man that I was with in his apartment in New York City about why he wasn't going to donate to a cause. He had plenty of money to donate to the cause because this guy's about 65 years old. He's had one mistress for most of his adult life, but he has a new mistress who's one-third his age. She's in her 20s. And she costs three times as much as the long-term mistress. I mean, I'm sure you're shocked. Younger uh, models cost more, right? And he's putting all his money into that. And he's in the middle of telling this story. The door opens and his wife walks into the room. And in mid-sentence, he just shifts gears as if he's talking about something else, introduces his wife to us. We talk for a few minutes. I try to be totally cool. She leaves the room. Minute the door shuts, he picks up the sentence exactly where he left it off and goes on explaining about how much he's. I've had people confess to me felonies, including murder. Okay? If people trust you, they will tell you all sorts of stuff. Now, a lot of journalists will take that trust and immediately go exploit it. They'll just go run with it. No. You want that person to keep talking to you. And so you need to treat it respectfully. And they may have a lot more to tell you, but so um, uh, come prepared, ask simple declarative questions, 
Avoid the word why. The only time to use the word why is that the police are having a perp walk, you know, where they take the handcuffed suspect and walk them past the journalists. Well, then you can say, Fideus, why'd you kill that woman? Why'd you do it? Because, you know, you're not going to give any substantive answer. You're either going to say I didn't do it or something like that. Other than that, never ask why. Ask what are the reasons? If I get to sit down with you in the jail, I'm not going to say, why'd you kill that woman? I'm going to say, Tell me the reasons, assuming you committed this crime, that you killed this woman. You must have had a reason to do this. Re asking why invokes defensive responses. Asking what are the reasons says, open up, tell me, you know, why did you, you know, if you say, why did you choose that dress tonight? Ugh. But if you say, you know, I, I, that, I like that dress. It's unusual. Can Tell me the reasons you, you decided to buy that dress when you were in the shop you get a whole different response. And then pay attention to verbs. The most important words we speak with are nouns and verbs, and verbs are much more important than nouns. So when I talked about a bunch of the guys met at one bar and ambled over to the other bar, if you say ambled when you come back to ask another question, whether it's immediately or an hour later, the other person will instinctively, even if they don't consciously know it, recognize that you're paying attention to them and that will encourage them to trust you. And uh, I always ask as a last question, is there anything you want to tell me I didn't ask you about? Now, 90% of the time people say, meh. But every once in a while somebody will say, well, I'm surprised you didn't ask me about a made up example, you know, why I uh, killed that girl and put her body under the trailer. <laughs> and I'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't know about that. Tell, please please uh, tell me the reasons you did this. And you know, I have had a few occasions where the whole tone of where we're going in the story went in another direction because of that question. So you always wow. want to ask that at the end question. And, and don't then be exploitive. So somebody tells you something, um, ex expect that you will see this person again, even if it's unlikely. Um, treat them with respect. Uh, when you write or produce your story on the air, the same way you should treat someone if it's a date with respect. Uh, and as long as you keep these principles in mind, um, you'll have better interviews and ask short questions. Nothing drives me crazier than when uh, some reporter on uh, who's on TV because it's a live press conference preens for the camera. Well, you know, I'm so smart and I know this and da 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 and the following. And oh, here's the question. Is the sun going to shine tomorrow? Um, just get to the question. It, it's it's funny when it it's funny when they started say I I have been in this university. I graduated this course. I did this. I did this, and I did this. So I have qualification to ask you about this. So so yeah, you don't need that. You don't need any of that. Ask the question. And when you but when you're when you're it's a journalism matter. If somebody starts evading the question, don't let them get away with it. You know. Senator, I'm sorry, that's not the question I asked. Your, your answer is about a different question. Let's go back to that question and hold them to the question. And you can ultimately say to them, so I'm sorry, you're not willing to answer the question. You don't know an answer. You're afraid. What, what, how to explain you're dodging the question. Now, that's aggressive. You don't want to do that until you've decided you're not going to get anywhere else. But there's a time and a place for that, too. I understand. While you are saying the why 
I thought one story of uh, my previous girlfriend, she dressed up and she was uh, looked amazing, all this stuff, and she just came to see me. I was like, I would ask her, why you, came, why you dress like that? And it was like, she was mad for, uh, for me the next three, four days <laughs> because I, I asked her that. So I agree with you. The why it gives, even if you have good intentions, out of curiosity, is like, it's an invasive right. question. It's like, it does... <laughs> the question to ask is, tell me the reasons you came to see me. That's not aggressive. That's asking you to open up and be intimate. And that, that's crucial. So I hope all of this was, uh, was useful to you. Yes, it was. So, but we, 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 you, I will not allow you to leave. We end the podcast always with one question uh, for the guest. That is, uh, this will be the last 30, 40 seconds of your life and you have the opportunity to broadcast something to the world. To, and if you die in 20, 30, 40 years, we can come back to these moments and see these words. What was your message to the world? Loving and respecting other people is the greatest achievement of humankind. It's not the technologies. It's not jet airplanes or genetic uh, science. It is the development of the human heart to respect and love other people. Integrity is crucial to doing that. If you have dishonest politicians, dishonest religious leaders, dishonest teachers, you cannot have a healthy society and you certainly cannot sustain a democratic society. Human nature is inherently cooperative. So just like honeybees and ants work together, human beings do too. That's how we achieve things. But trust also has to be earned. It has to be reinforced. And it has to be 100% of the time. You can't say, well, I'm going to be a little dishonest now. I bet I'll be honest after that. So uh, love, integrity, trust, and consistency. Those are the things that will make society endure and improve and have better lives for everyone as time passes. Thank you. I love you. Thank you for your time. Thank you guys for listening. This was amazing.